Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Many of New England's ancient sewage systems date back to a time long before we worried about what goes into our rivers, lakes, and streams. Part of me wants to go with the popular idea, let's never dump anything into the river. What I'm trying to wrap my head around is it could be worse. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankosky. Our waterways are much cleaner than they were before the Clean Water Act of the early 70s, but there's a big push on to keep out even more pollutants. We'll investigate. We'll also look back at Boston's ill-fated Olympic bid. There might be a sense of pride and elation that lasts for the 17 days and maybe a few days after that. But that doesn't justify a 15 to $20 billion investment. We'll find out what happens to that aluminum can you throw in the recycling bin, and we'll meet a main maker who uses Yankee ingenuity to get any job done and then shares it on YouTube. I live my life by saying I can do something that I can't. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankosky. We're going to start today's show with the water we drink, the water we swim in, the water we flush down the toilet, and the water we put into our rivers and lakes. By the end of the year, the Environmental Protection Agency is expected to announce new limits on the amount of nitrogen that wastewater treatment plants in Massachusetts, Vermont, and New Hampshire can release into New England's largest river, the Connecticut. These new rules can mean a small tweak to a system or a costly plant overhaul. No one knows for sure until these limits are announced. Nitrogen is a nutrient in the soil, but in salt water, it's a pollutant that's blamed for fish die-offs in Long Island Sound, where the Connecticut River winds up. New England Public Radio's Jill Kaufman has our story. The Connecticut River is the largest freshwater tributary to the salty Long Island Sound. Nitrogen in the river is not considered a pollutant by clean water standards, but it quickly becomes a pollutant in salt water, where it causes rapid algae growth. When that algae finally consumes all of the nitrogen, and the nitrogen comes in pulses, it doesn't come 100% all the time, they grow like crazy. Judy Preston is standing near the Long Island Sound in Old Lyme, Connecticut. She's a scientist with UConn and the EPA's Long Island Sound study, which in 2001 set a nitrogen reduction target for the sound, regulating wastewater treatment plants in Connecticut and New York. The algae's life cycle, she says, saps oxygen away from other vegetation and aquatic life. And when algae die, then they start sinking down to the bottom. That's where the bacteria comes in and starts to consume the dead algae. And in doing that, they're consuming oxygen. And without oxygen, over the last few decades, fish have suddenly died by the thousands. Marshland has deteriorated. The whole system suffers. No one who works in wastewater treatment wants to witness a watershed slowly being killed off, including Mickey Novak, who delights, in fact, at the sight of people fishing in a river he's helped keep clean. Looks like you could jump right in, right? We're standing on the banks of the Connecticut River near the endpoint of the sewage treatment process. Below us is the pipe where up to 67 million gallons of effluent, the treated water, go into the river every day. This is 
a nice effluent, um, you know, does quite nicely in the Connecticut River. I'm sure the uh, nitrogen's under 10 milligrams per liter, so. Novak is the plant manager at New England's second largest regional wastewater treatment facility, serving seven towns. It's right across the river from the Basketball Hall of Fame in Springfield, Massachusetts, about 70 miles from Long Island Sound. Don't forget, no, don't forget, the atmosphere is 70. Back in his office, like a science teacher, Novak has three jars set up on a table. One is raw sewage, the influent, what comes into the plant. And it looks pretty clear. Well, listen, sewage is mostly water. It's mostly water. Novak describes the influent gentili, industrial and domestic flow. Well, it's what you flush down the toilet and pour down your sink. There's toilet paper in the jar. You can't really see it because it's manufactured to break down into tiny microscopic pieces. And there's nitrogen, too, because it's in what we eat. Ammonia is your most toxic form of nitrogen to go in a river. You know, the organic nitrogen, which is in urine and um, uh, fecal matter, you know, converted to ammonia in the collection system. And I think you've smelled ammonia in a diaper, right? Oh, yeah, yeah so, so the diaper hasn't been changed. And this plant, Novak says, does a good job removing nitrogen, and it could remove even more. The technology is there, but it would cost a lot of money. When this plant was first built, like plants all over the country in the 1970s with gobs of federal money from the Clean Water Act. People were just happy to have a secondary treatment plant. They weren't even thinking about nitrogen. But then over the years, you know, that became more important. Mickey Novak and his boss... Josh Schimmel, the executive director of the Springfield Water and Sewer Commission, are waiting to hear from EPA about how much nitrogen the plant will be required to remove. And nitrogen removal is not Schimmel's priority. We don't think nitrogen is an issue from our wastewater treatment plant. He doesn't trust EPA's nitrogen data. And he says wastewater treatment plants are not the main nitrogen source for a problem more than an hour away from here. It's true that septic tanks... Field and land runoff, the atmosphere, are all contributing to the problem in Long Island Sound. But that won't keep EPA from putting a limit on the amount of nitrogen wastewater treatment plants up and down the Connecticut River are allowed to discharge. From north of the Connecticut border up to the river's headwaters in Vermont. That's Jill Kaufman reporting. Coming up on next week's show, we'll look at what these regulations might mean for wastewater plants far from Long Island Sound. The reality is, is that municipalities are being forced to accommodate nitrogen, and it's on our shoulders, and it's costing a lot of money. There's another nutrient that's plaguing water quality in New England, and that's phosphorus. It's linked to toxic blue-green algae blooms in Lake Champlain. But that's just one of the problems the podcast Brave Little State went to investigate for their latest episode. The People-Powered Program from Vermont Public Radio asks for listener questions, and a listener named Mike Brown asked, how are we going to address the aging sewage systems in Vermont? He was concerned about what he was hearing about gross sewage overflows that were happening more frequently with big storms and flooding. As Brave Little State found out, the problem is linked to climate change and an antique sewer system that in some spots predates the automobile. Taylor Dobbs is Vermont Public Radio's digital reporter, and he co-reported this episode with host Angela Evansy and question asker Mike Brown. Taylor, welcome back to Next. Hi, John. Good to be here. Well, let's start with that big question about the aging sewage systems in Vermont. Just how aging are they? These systems, uh, they can be really old. I mean, a lot of them were sort of redeveloped after the Clean Water Act passed in the 1970s. But as Vermont was settled, people needed to do something with their sewage. And so we see pipes that are being pulled out of the ground and renovations that date back to 
Abraham Lincoln's tenure as president. So really old systems. And then even the newer ones are getting old and to the point of needing maintenance and replacement. You can only imagine that sewage systems or any systems that date back to Abraham Lincoln's presidency are are pretty old and probably failing. But where do those failing pipes show up? I mean, what's the problem here? Well, the problem here is that sometimes the way these systems are designed, if there's too much rainwater or snow melt or basically any surge of water in the natural environment, you get this problem where there's too much water entering the sewage system because it's also collecting that rainwater from the streets and gutters and so on. And so when there's too much water in the system, they can't treat it all and they have to let some go. Otherwise, it'll back up into homes and businesses. And that's when you get this thing called a combined sewer overflow. And it's uh, a lot like it sounds. It's sewage and rain runoff, and they are not treated yet, but they're being sent directly into rivers and streams and lakes in Vermont and elsewhere around the country, too. This idea that you would take all of the storm uh, water that would come off the streets and also all the stuff that's coming from the household going down your toilet or going down your sink, this is an idea that, that comes from some time ago, and it was actually meant to make for a cleaner water system, right? That's right. And the theory at the time of the Clean Water Act, again, this was like the 1970s and 80s as these were being built out. The running theory was that it's not just sewage that causes water pollution. It's also runoff from streets. And if you think about gutters, it makes a lot of sense. That's kind of gross. And if there's water running through there and running off the land into rivers and streams, those are going to get gross also. So the theory was if we collect all this water and treat it at the wastewater treatment plant, then Ultimately, there's more clean water happening and less dirty water entering the natural world. And so that was the theory when these things were designed. And in practice, it it does do that. Most of the time when these things aren't overflowing, they're gathering stormwater and sewage and they're treating them and it's cleaner than what we would otherwise have. The issue is that as they've aged and as the storms have gotten more severe, these sewer overflows are happening more often, and and that is problematic for kind of obvious reasons. We don't want untreated sewage in the rivers and lakes. In terms of how often these happen, while we were reporting this episode in the month of April, there were, I think, 15 of these, and they totaled more than a million gallons of untreated water released into rivers and streams. So, Taylor, you took a trip to Rutland, Vermont, with Angela and Mike to see what combined sewer overflow, or CSO, actually looks like. Let's give a listen. We're going to CSO number one, lovingly referred to as Calvary Cemetery, because that's where it is. We start by heading to Rutland to meet with Jeff Wenberg. He's the commissioner of public works, and he takes us to one of the city's four CSO outfalls. This one is on the far end of Calvary Cemetery, right by Otter Creek. All right, just park right over here. And when those guys are standing, they're standing right on top. It's not the most visible civic infrastructure. That's, that's a good thing. This is a place we don't want any mischief. It's a big block of cement, kind of like a pedestal, with a heavy metal hatch on top. When you climb up on top and open the hatch and look down inside, you can see water shooting through a huge pipe. Like, you could stand up in this thing. Okay, that is the sewer. The water's heading to the city's treatment plant. See it flowing in that direction diagonally? Remember that a CSO is basically a junction. When there's too much rain in the lines, the system starts working differently. Instead of going to the plant, untreated stormwater gets diverted, along with untreated sewage, straight into the river. So this gate basically is set up so that when the water backs up 
high on the sewer side, it'll open up and allow it to overflow and go to the river. If you live in Jeff Wenberg's head, heavy rain equals sewage overflows. So he's constantly watching the weather and planning ahead. Every weather forecast, especially rain, uh, is, okay, are we likely to have an event? If it's in the middle of the night, do we have to have people ready and understand that they could be called in? There's a little camera set up inside the CSO, so city employees can keep an eye on things. But it doesn't really work the way it's supposed to. After about a day, it fogs up, and it's just a fuzzy blob. So we're piloting... Windshield wiper on that thing. They're, they're working on something like that. Yeah. And just like the camera, the CSOs themselves are operating in tough conditions. As we know, the pipes are really old. And when those systems were put in, Rutland wasn't nearly as developed as it is now. Plus, the Achilles heel of the CSO is the big rainstorm. And because of climate change, we're getting a lot more of those. It's not a good combination, as our question asker Mike figures out. Just a ballpark, uh, how often do you see the water go over that level per year? A year, anywhere from 20 to 30 times. And arguably, it would be great if we could get it down to one, one or two every five years. One way Rutland is trying to get that number down is by upgrading its systems. And technically speaking, it's totally possible to do this. In his office in City Hall, Jeff Wenberg talks us through it. Welcome. Um, So here's the stuff. There's a big map of the city spread out on a table, and Mike, champion question asker that he is, literally puts his finger on a recent fix. I want to understand this green blotch by Crescent Street a little better. Um, It says uh, former combined, but now it's separated. Yep. It turns out there's a way to take the combined out of combined sewers and separate the pipes, send the sewage to the treatment plant, and treat stormwater on its own so it doesn't cause overflows. This involves something with a very cool name, the swirl separator. It goes through a vortex chamber. and Like a centrifuge? Yeah, kind of. It's just by itself. Just the flow of the water itself causes it to swirl. Whatever's floating in the stormwater that's not supposed to be there gets captured, and everything else goes into a stream. And it's amazing how much stuff comes out of there, and they do work. But Wenberg says separation projects like that are not the answer to Mike's question. For one, because it would be super expensive. This project Rutland did was in one neighborhood. It cost $5.2 million. And it didn't even allow them to retire one of their CSOs. It just takes the load, so to speak, off part of the system. If we were to separate everything, on this map that's currently combined. You're looking at 120 to $150 million, and that's to get rid of four locations. That's just in Rutland. Across Vermont, there are about 62 other CSOs. Now, what about the other 62? Not only can we not afford it, it's bad policy. Bad policy, Wenberg says, because combined systems, when they're not overflowing, are doing a much better job than separated systems. That swirl separator really can't compare. It's not even remotely close to what's going on at the treatment plant. Wenberg jokes on tours that he gives that if he had to choose between drinking a glass of water from Otter Creek and a glass of treated water from the sewage treatment plant, he'd choose the treated water, though he did not demonstrate this for us. This is totally not the answer I was expecting, because when Taylor was telling me about this $5.2 million project um, that he's 
covered in the past, I fully expected to come down here and have you say, yep, we did it, it's working great, and now we just need money to do it 10 times over. Is that surprise? Am I the only one who's surprised by this? Part of me, deep inside, wants to, to rail against it and go with the popular idea of let's never dump anything into the river. And what I'm trying to wrap my head around is the idea that it could be worse. That's from an episode of VPR's Brave Little State, featuring host Angela Evansy, curious listener Mike Brown, and our guest, digital reporter Taylor Dobbs. Early in our program, we heard about another problem coming out of New England's sewers, nitrogen. Uh, Taylor, in Vermont, you're fighting another nutrient problem in the water. The big problem that we have here in Vermont is actually in Lake Champlain, and it's similar in that it's a chemical that's running off the land and causing problems in the water. But on on that side of the Green Mountains, the chemical is phosphorus. We see this in fertilizer on farms and runoff from roads, and even it's in the soil and stream banks. So as nature unfolds and stream banks are eroding, there's a little bit of phosphorus getting into the water. The problem we have is that human activity has caused a lot more phosphorus to get into the water. And so we're having these things called blue-green algae blooms, or if you're wonky like me, cyanobacteria blooms. It's the same thing. And those can be toxic. They can release neurotoxins and liver toxins. Pretty bad news and not good for the swimming and fishing. Yeah, and it's a multi-staged effort to try to get less phosphorus uh, into Lake Champlain. But there's also an attempt to have farmers change their practices, to have homeowners change their practices. Is this pretty widespread right now across Vermont? This is a really widespread effort, and that's kind of a shift from the historical policy. When the Clean Water Act came out, a huge amount of the focus was on sewage because that seemed like such an obvious candidate. If you're trying to make the water clean, maybe stop dumping raw sewage into it. And that's a great first step. But what we found over time is that we got more and more of the pollution out of the sewage. And just by virtue of that problem shrinking, the other problems made up a much bigger share of the issue. And so now we're trying to deal with farm runoff, which makes up about 40 percent, and that's the leading contributor of phosphorus to Lake Champlain. But there's also urban runoff and stream bank erosion, as I mentioned before, and just water coming off forests and the natural landscape also has phosphorus in it. And so all of the efforts in Vermont right now are how do we get all of those numbers to come down? It's not so focused just on the sewage treatment plants. Those only make up about 4% of the phosphorus contribution. It's about everybody who's contributing, and policymakers are trying to figure out exactly who needs to turn down the phosphorus and how much in order to make Lake Champlain healthier. Taylor Dobbs is Vermont Public Radio's digital reporter. He co-reported this episode of Brave Little State, their podcast that's listener-powered with host Angela Evansy, and also the guy who asked the question, Mike Brown. We'll have links to their episode at nextnewengland.org. Taylor, thanks so much. Great to be here. Coming up, lessons from the Boston Olympics that never happened. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. 
Paris and Los Angeles are now in the running to host the 2024 Summer Olympics. But before the U.S. Olympic Committee set its sights on L.A., they chose another city. What happened here is Boston was selected by the USOC to be this country's representative in a global competition to determine who will host the 2024 Olympics. This is the start of the race. That's Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker back in January of 2015. That race he's talking about only lasted until July, when the city's mayor, Marty Walsh, announced he wouldn't sign a contract that would promise taxpayer funding for Olympic cost overruns. And the Boston Olympic bid came to an end. So what happened? Well, less than a month after that January press conference, a snowstorm ground the T, Boston's subway system, to a halt, prompting big concerns about the need to fix public transit. Then stories emerged about a lack of transparency about costs and demands from the International Olympic Committee, all of which sparked a vocal opposition. Our next guests were some of the Olympic bid's most outspoken skeptics. Chris Dempsey is a co-founder of the movement No Boston Olympics. He now directs a nonprofit called Transportation for Massachusetts. Andy Zimbalist teaches economics at Smith College, and he studies public financing of sports events. They're co-authors of this new book, No Boston Olympics, How and Why Smart Cities Are Passing on the Torch. Chris and Andrew, welcome to Next. Thanks, John. Thanks, John. Uh, Chris, I'll start with you and, and ask about the history, the process of how Boston started down the road of, of almost getting the Olympics. Well, in early 2013, a group of Bostonians got together. They happened to be pretty wealthy and pretty powerful people, and they decided that a bid would be good for the future of the city. We started our group, No Boston Olympics, in the fall of 2013 in a living room on the backside of Beacon Hill, and we were convinced that a bid would be a bad idea. And over the course of 2014 and then 2015, the city had a real debate over the pros and cons of whether this would be good for the future of our city, and it ended with the bid being pulled in the summer of 2015. So to Andrew Zimbalist, this is something that you've been studying for years about the the impact of public financing on sports stadiums. Having this happen right in your backyard is probably a pretty easy fight for you to take up. Why did you get involved with No Boston Olympics? Initially, I was asked by Senator Stan Rosenberg, State Senator Stan Rosenberg, if I would be willing to serve on a commission that the governor was going to appoint to look at the feasibility of Boston hosting the Olympics. And I said I'd be happy to serve, provided that the logistics worked out. And Sam asked, uh, Stan asked me for my CV, and he sent the CV with a cover letter urging Patrick to appoint me to the commission. And I also gave Stan two names of two other very prominent academics in, in Massachusetts who studied and had a lot of experience with the Olympic Games. None of the three of us were appointed. And and instead, the people who were appointed to the committee were basically all yes people. They were people connected to the construction industry, to the hospitality industry, and the like. So uh, I was very skeptical about it from the very beginning. I think Boston has has some extra logistical issues beyond what uh, other cities have because it's very compact geographically. It's very hard to find space. And I think that that became more and more evident as, as the bid proceeded. But there were lots of things that happened, John, over the course of the eight months between January of 2015 when the USOC picked uh, Boston to, to be the U.S. representative in the international competition, and then the end of July when the USOC uh, disqualified Boston as the bid. And one, one of the things that happened is that the city signed uh, a pledge, 
or the mayor of the city, uh, Mayor Walsh, signed a pledge with USOC that Boston would cover all the cost overruns connected to the Olympics. That meant potentially millions, billions and billions of dollars, which Boston doesn't have in its two billion, two and a half billion dollar budget. When Andrew Zimbalist talks about cost overruns and the possibility of Boston and the citizens there picking up the tab for that, Maybe we can get into some details in a moment, Chris, but look, Boston has a, a long history of big projects with big cost overruns. I mean, you huh. just at the time were finishing up the big dig, just about the biggest public works project in American history, and that was plagued with quite some cost overruns. I can only imagine people were skittish about that. Yeah, I think that played a role, and I don't think that we should use the big dig as an excuse to never think big again about the future of our city. But we have to think smart. We have to make sure that we're choosing the right projects. And when you look at the history of the Olympic Games in other cities and the requirements of the IOC in terms of these massive venues that are only going to be used for a short period of time, plus the taxpayer guarantee, the fact that taxpayers have to cover those cost overruns, this was never really a smart project. And what we saw in the course of the of the polling and the process was that the more Bostonians learned about an Olympic bid, the less they liked it. So they were very open to the idea because we're a city that loves sports and we're a city that certainly believes we should shine on the world stage. But when you look at what it was going to take to do it, it just was not worth it. We have so many other good things going on in this city and we have a very bright future why would we put that at risk in service of a three-week event? But but you, you talked about that, Chris, this sort of civic pride and cheerleading that often happens around a bid like that. That, you know, sucked up a, an awful lot of prominent people in the city, not just in the business community, but in the sports community. It's the sort of thing I would assume that people might rally around. I mean, what's the problem with bringing the Olympics here? It'll put Boston on a world map. We'll get people coming from all over the world. It's something to get excited about, right? Well, yeah, sure. It's something to be excited about. And we always said that the three weeks of the Olympics would actually be a lot of fun. The question is, is it worth the seven years of construction and cost on venues and facilities that you don't need? And then the years of debt that you're left with afterward, not to mention the cost of maintaining those facilities. Look, we welcome the world to Boston every single year in September when students from around the world come to our leading universities. We welcome the world every year again in April when we host the Boston Marathon. And you know, a whole bunch of the time, we also welcome the world for a World Series or an NBA World Championship. So we are a very open, open and welcoming city. We do not and never needed the Olympics to show anyone that we were world-class. Andrew Zimbalist, as I mentioned before, your skepticism goes far beyond just this project for these Olympics in this city. This is something you've been writing about for years and years. Give me a, a little bit of a sense about how this bid was different in your mind from some of the other projects that you've written about over the years, because it, as if I've read your writing correctly over quite some time, you almost never think it's a good idea for the public to pony up big money for a baseball stadium, a soccer stadium, or, or an Olympics anytime, not, not just here. Yeah, that's that's a little bit of a mischaracterization, but <laughs> let, let, me, let me try to take that apart piece by piece. Um, you know, the, the first thing is that to, to host the Olympics today, n now it requires for the Summer Olympics 36 venue, sporting venues. It requires an Olympic village, which is approximately a $3 billion investment. It requires an international media and broadcasting center. You're looking overall at a cost of 15 to $20 billion on, on average. Four venues, most of which 
aren't needed and most of which won't be used. They'll turn into white elephants after the games. And you're using up also somewhere in the neighborhood of five to 8,000 acres of urban real estate uh, that have to be dedicated to these Olympic projects. It's a lot of land for any city, particularly a city that's compact and, and, and already very densely populated and settled. In terms of professional baseball or professional football, the economics really depend upon the details of the situation. Uh, the way the stadiums were financed and done between 1960 and, and, and 2010, generally speaking, they were not good, good economic investments. However, it's very important, in my view, to, to draw a clear distinction between spending billions of dollars for hosting 17 days of the Olympics mm -hmm. and then having the Olympics disappear and spending maybe uh, $500 million or $300 million on a stadium for the Boston Red Sox or for the New York Yankees or for some other team, because then th that team stays year after year, decade after decade, and becomes part of the cultural fabric of the city, becomes something that helps the city create a sense of community. So I think that there's, uh, other than the economics of it, there's a, there's a real social and cultural value potentially for hosting a sports team, and that is not really present. There, there might be a sense of elation if the Olympics are pulled off well. They weren't, of course, in Rio this past summer, and they're not in other places. But if they're pulled off well, there might be a sense of pride and elation that lasts for the 17 days and maybe a few days after that. But that doesn't justify a 15 to $20 billion investment. The amount of revenue that a city typically gets from hosting the Olympics is $4 billion, maybe $5 billion. That's not a very good financial balance. And we, we've seen how uh, an awful lot of cities have, have struggled financially in the wake of the Olympics. Although one of the arguments, Chris, that we heard from uh, people around Boston, and honestly with every single Olympic bid, is it's not just building these stadiums. Uh, obviously, many of these stadiums are going to go empty afterward, no matter what people might say up front. But you have an, an imperative to build new transportation projects that maybe you weren't going to build before. We, we read an interview with uh, Fred Salvucci, a uh, former transportation secretary who said um, we really should clean the house for ourselves but the Olympics is is a good excuse is there anything Chris to that argument that you could use the momentum of a project like the Olympics to fix big structural transportation problems that you've been needing to fix for a long time well I don't think so uh, and I know Fred pretty well I used to work in the uh, in the governor's office in transportation um, so I'm familiar with this topic and look you know if you look at the Boston 2024 bid, they had a $5 billion bid and they didn't commit a single dollar of that $5 billion to upgrading our infrastructure. And then when you ask them, well, are there commitments that have to be done for the Olympics? They actually said no, because the reality is that the International Olympic Committee doesn't really care whether you have public transportation infrastructure. They're selecting your city on questions like what time zone are you in? Is this going to look good on television? And do you have enough four-star hotels that you can put us up in? The International Olympic Committee actually requires that lanes on highways be shut down and reserved only for them, for their sponsors, and for athletes. So they're not taking the green line. This, these are people like the, the Princess of Liechtenstein, the Prince of Monaco, the Prince of Malaysia. They're used to getting their way. They're incredibly wealthy, and they're not riding you know, the, the green line like I am every day. Um, so this was not going to improve our public transportation. In fact, it was going to be a very significant distraction from the day-to-day -day issues that Bostonians have with traffic, with our need to improve infrastructure, and then other things like education and healthcare, which of course the Olympics doesn't touch at all. I, I'm wondering what lessons you think that this particular failed bid or, or shut down bid 
uh, for the Olympics in Boston, Andy, might might tell other cities around the world. I know that's part of the reason why you why you wanted to write this book to maybe have a blueprint for other cities and, and people who might be considering bringing in Olympics. So, what are the big lessons here? Yeah, so part of the lessons have already or had already been absorbed by many cities for the 2022 Winter Olympics. Uh, there were f- five European cities that dropped out of the bidding in 2014 and 2015 because they didn't think it made economic sense. And, and the IOC was just left with Almaty, Kazakhstan, and Beijing, China, two very undesirable choices. And with regard to the 2024 Summer Olympics, uh, Toronto was contemplating a bid. The city council there voted not to pursue the bid. Budapest dropped out, Rome dropped out, and Hamburg dropped out after they looked at the details of the bid. As it happens, uh, Chris, Chris and I were invited independently to different universities in Hamburg to talk about what happened in Boston, and we were contacted by these other cities. So we did talk about our experience, and on the basis of, of, of having that contact um, and having those fruitful conversations, we decided that a book was in order because there's going to be other cities in the future and other movements in the future that want to know about the Boston experience. Chris, what's been the impact in Boston? This is a this is a project, as you've both outlined, that was green-lighted by a, a small minority of people, powerful people, who wanted to bring the Olympics to Boston. It, it wasn't something that had broad public support. But I can only imagine that there were a lot of follow-on conversations about ways to develop the city, transportation needs, infrastructure needs that had to be brought out into the light whenever you started to have these conversations about whether or not to bring the Olympics in. Has any of that proven to be positive a couple years down the road? Well, I think a lot of that was also driven by the winter of 2015, the historic winter with all that snow where the MBTA shut down for a number of days. And I was one of those workers who was stranded uh, at home and not able to get to work because the tea was shut down. So I think that and that in combination with the Olympic conversation has in some ways um, helped move the conversation forward. To be very clear on this, it was people on both sides of the conversation that talked about transportation. The pro side never really had a, a real plan. I think on our side, we said, look, we want to focus on the day-to-day basics. We want to get the basics right. We have a incredibly bright future and a thriving economy but our success is at risk if we don't make investments in things like our roads and bridges and things like the MBTA and our basic education system. In, in the intervening time, uh, Boston, which was already a, a technological hub, it was already a place of great innovation with uh, enormously successful colleges and universities and hospitals and one of the, the thriving city centers in America. Chris, it's even gotten bigger and better. It, it drew GE away from Connecticut. It's drawing more and more young workers to a thriving uh, waterfront district that didn't exist not so many years ago. It, it almost seems um, quaint to think about a Boston that had uh, an idea in mind back in you know the mid-2000s that it had to get the Olympics to be something great because right now the economy and, and the sort of burgeoning tech sector of Boston looks, looks pretty great to the rest of us. Yeah, John, I couldn't agree more. I mean, we have a great thing going on up here, and we are lucky to have uh, the economy that we do and the vibrancy that we do, and we, we have a very bright future. Uh, and again, that was going to be put at risk by this Olympic bid. It was not going to be enhanced by that bid. And so I think Bostonians are really happy to sort of move beyond that issue and to focus on that bright future. And if I could add, John, some of, some of the developments that you talked about, GE, Vertex, others, 
uh, new developments in the seaport area. These are all developments that received tax preferences from the city on the order of 4 to $11 per square foot. In order to develop the area called Redette Circle that was going to host the Olympic Village in Boston, they were talking about a, a tax subsidy per square foot of $258. Uh, th that's indicative of why this was not in the best interests of Boston and not along the same trajectory that Boston had been following to, to create its successful development over the previous 10 years. The book is called No Boston Olympics, How and Why Smart Cities Are Passing on the Torch. The authors are Andrew Zimbalist and Chris Dempsey. Thank you both so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, John. Thanks, John. Not everyone was so happy to see Boston pass up the Olympic experience. For a different perspective, we turned to Shirley Leung. She writes a business column for the Boston Globe, and she covered the Olympic bid closely. Shirley, welcome to Next. Hi. Well, you wrote at the time that you perhaps and maybe others were, were disappointed in the fact that, that Boston didn't get this Olympic bid. Let me take you back to that time. What did you think when Boston was first considered to be the site of the 2024 Olympics? Well, it, it was, I think a lot of Bostonians, we were a bit surprised. You know, we're pretty um, small city, tight quarters, I should say. And so to be hosting, uh, you know, possibly hundreds of thousands of people seemed uh, pretty unbelievable. But, um, you know, once it sunk in, you know, the idea was that the Olympics would come here and it would be an opportunity to invest in the city to what we say fix the T, which is our subway system. Uh, it would allow us to build more housing, middle class housing. You know, the athletes, when they come in, we built a village for them. Afterwards, when they leave, it could be housing. We could... Uh, you know, take away that circle, which is a, a industrial part of town, and it could become a, a new uh, sparkling neighborhood of Boston, the Boston of the future. So, uh, so once uh, you know, once you heard more about it, it, you thought about perhaps it's an opportunity for the state and the federal government to invest in Boston. The the promises that that come with an Olympic bid are of, as you say development, uh, transportation, infrastructure improvements. But there's also an awful lot of building that has to go into sports complexes that maybe won't be used down the line. Is there some feeling now as you look back at that time that these are improvements that the city of Boston and the state of Massachusetts could and should be making for reasons other than an Olympics coming that maybe can be made on, on more of a human scale without building a whole bunch of stadiums that might sit, sit empty years from now? Bob Kraft tried to build a soccer stadium um, on land that was supposed to be the Athletes Village. He recently dropped the idea because he couldn't get community support. Um, I think if you look in the two years that uh, we dropped out, um, you, we have to ask ourselves, I mean, what kind of big signature investment have we, have we made in Boston? I mean, the one thing that people do talk about is the city and state investing in bringing the General Electric headquarters to uh, Boston. We we stole that from uh, from Connecticut. You but, sure did. Um, I mean, that's the one kind of big thing that we've done. But but beyond that, you know, you don't see a, a huge investment in the T. Governor Baker is fixing the T, but I'd like to see even more investment in uh, the T. I mean, one of the things that I keep writing about is, are we thinking big enough, and are we investing in our future? I mean, the re reason why I like the thinking about the Olympics and writing about the Olympics is that 
it showed that Boston can be really ambitious. And um, and so what are we doing uh, beyond GE uh, to show the world that that we're we're ambitious um, and we uh, and we we think big. Shirley Leung is a columnist for the Boston Globe. Thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Coming up from beer can to garbage, back to beer can, the life cycle of recycled aluminum. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Melville Charitable Trust, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of housing and homelessness. On last week's show, environmental reporter Patrick Scahill took us on an electrons tour of New England, mapping how power gets from a source to your home. This week, he breaks down another voyage, one that's a bit more humble, how that aluminum can you just threw in the recycling bin actually becomes a new aluminum can. In New England, all states except Rhode Island and New Hampshire have recycling programs built around a system of deposits and refunds for cans and bottles. It's aimed at reducing litter and protecting the environment. But as Patrick found out, it's not just environmentalists who want more aluminum recycling. There's a real business case, too. As thousands of aluminum cans pour by me at the Materials Innovation and Recycling Authority, or MIRA, plants in Hartford, I'm struck by two things. One, it's really loud. Yeah, this is nothing. When it's running at a full, full bore, it'd be really hard for people to probably hear me talk, you know that. Thomas Gaffey is director of recycling here, and as we shout over a river of all types of cans winding by us on a conveyor belt, I notice something else. Lots of people don't seem to be claiming Connecticut's five-cent bottle deposit refund. As you can see, there's a lot of uh, cans that people throw away that are valuable as far as having nickels attached to it. In its latest report, Connecticut's Department of Revenue Services reported about $33.5 million in unclaimed nickels, money that goes into the state's general fund. And according to the Aluminum Association, over the last decade, Americans recycled only about half of their old cans. For Mira, Gaffey says aluminum is its most valuable waste product. From January through March, it netted between $23,000 and $27,000 per month. Jerry Powell is editor of Resource Recycling. He says for industry, recycling aluminum just makes economic sense. Aluminum is the most valuable portion, uh, generally, of a household's uh, waste stream. The reason is, in a really simple vernacular, aluminum is embodied energy. Put another way, it takes money and a lot of fuel to make virgin aluminum. That's because the element is tied up with other compounds and ores, which can be expensive to extract. So the aluminum industry is very aggressive at getting back recycled metal so they can use it for cans. As we walk across the recycling floor in Hartford, Gaffey says about once a month, a truck comes into the plant to pick up its old aluminum. Eventually, those cans make it down to an aluminum reprocessing plant in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, run by a company called Constellium. Andy Logsdon is the guy who manages its aluminum. Some people look at a can and say, well, that's an aluminum can. It must be the same properties throughout the whole thing. That actually isn't true. The body of the can is one alloy. It's a softer alloy, and the top and the tab are from a harder alloy. An alloy containing magnesium, which makes the top more brittle and yields that nice pop and hiss when you open it up. 
Logsdon says his plant shreds newly arrived cans, heating them up to clean and melt the material. From there, the reborn aluminum is cast into giant slabs, which are heated, thinned, and eventually rolled into coils with sheet about eight one-hundredths of an inch thick. That's the thickness of a beer or soda can. Loxton says about 80% of what his company ships out of the plant as new aluminum coil comes from recycled scrap. We are able to, to get this material and reprocess it and actually save money versus buying brand new virgin aluminum coming out of a smelter. There's this constant battle for can sheet makers to want to increase the percentage of recycled aluminum. Brad McCauley is a reporter at American Metal Market. He says the UBC market, that's used beverage containers, is its own commodity, one tracked and traded today at about $1,400 per ton of material. Cans inevitably don't get funneled into the correct stream that they're, they're thrown away, and so that, that at the end of the day creates this deficit. And so there is a healthy import market of used beverage containers in the United States. That means cans coming in from Canada, Mexico, Brazil, and even South Korea. Once that can becomes coil, it gets shipped to can makers, where it's stamped out and drawn into new cans. Brad McCauley says the whole recycling wheel turns very quickly. It's estimated that it could be 60 days from can to can, so essentially from the moment that you toss the can into the recycling bin to the moment that can is put back onto a shelf. A can reincarnated as another can for you to pop open at your next picnic. That's Patrick Scahill reporting. Recycling is one of the hallmarks of a thrifty household, and I don't mean putting that can in the right bin. I'm talking about using stuff that you've already got for something else or making something up from scratch when you don't have the money to buy something new. Reporter John Kalish introduces us to someone who embodies this Yankee ingenuity and shares what he makes on YouTube. Bus Huxley is the pseudonym for a Waterford, Maine maker who entertains viewers with step-by-step guides and video wizardry. Gardner Waldire is a lanky 6'4". He's 34 years old and wears glasses that often frame a sheepish smile. Waldire grew up in an old farmhouse. He comes from a very frugal family. We had very little money to maintain the house and to maintain the tractor and the fields and the firewood. All this stuff was stuff that we just kind of had to do. And we were always fixing something as cheaply as possible and figuring out a solution to a problem, whatever it may be. He has a unique set of skills, the ability when the checkbook is empty to get a project done may not be OSHA approved, but it accomplishes the goal. That's Waldire's neighbor, Jeff Winslow. I spoke with Winslow inside his barn on a frigid weekday morning. I do not watch his videos online only because I'm rarely online. I participate in some of the videos, apparently. Winslow lent his excavator to Waldire, who can be seen using it to pull tree stumps out of the ground in an episode of A House Built from Trees, a series documenting the construction of a new home on Waldire's property. There are 20 episodes so far with no end in sight. Right now, it kind of looks like a, like a Russian trapper's cabin. I've never been to Russia, I'm sorry. But it looks kind of janky. Waldire's new house is a testament to Yankee thriftiness because he's doing much of the work himself. And he manages to do it while he's building, plowing, and cooking for others. I live my life by saying I can do something that I can't, that I haven't done before. 
For example, uh, a friend of mine who owns a restaurant called me and said, I need to hire somebody to shuck 400 oysters in a matter of hours. Can you do that? I said, sure. He said, you ever shucked an oyster? I said, yeah, I've shucked plenty of oysters. I never shucked an oyster in my life. But I was confident that I could learn it by going on YouTube, watching people shuck oysters the night before, talking to other chef friends, and all right, we can do this. The videos play with time and make use of stop-motion animation, so a winter woodpile seemingly gets stacked without any human intervention. And vegetables dance across a cutting board. A serving tray made from crosscuts of a locust tree is sanded on screen in just 13 seconds. Though Waldire spent hours working on it with his power sander. I love the dissemination of information efficiently for free. That's the beauty of the internet. Usable information on how to create something, how to fix something. Like a working 1956 Ford tractor or a 1967 Volvo sports car that Waldire keeps in perfect running order. Besides his obsession with four-wheel vehicles, this main maker is clearly fond of four-legged creatures, not the least of which is Bodie, his Airedale terrier who scampers into the frame in many of the videos. Woodpeckers, foxes, and baby raccoons also get some screen time. Waldire's YouTube following is modest, but his interests are way more eclectic than those of the other YouTube makers. In addition to all his sanding and soldering, he does a lot of sautéing and simmering. His cooking videos serve up tacos, pasta, and deer sausage. It turns out, in addition to everything else, he's a master chef. I mean, he could walk into a restaurant like the Four Seasons and cook you dinner, even though he lives in the north woods of Maine. That's Seth Lipsky, a New York journalist who is so keen on Waldire's videos, he puts them on the front page of his online newspaper, The New York Sun. This summer, Gardner Waldire will be making pizza and an orchard in Maine. He's a hard man to pin down on his long-range plans, but making a living producing videos is certainly among them. Once a video is out there, once something is produced and put on the internet, it's carved into a digital stone, and I love that. It's permanent. That's Gardner Waldire, otherwise known as Bus Huxley, talking to reporter John Kaler. If you want to see some of his videos, go to nextnewengland.org. And at least for some of them, don't try this at home. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrew Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The digital editor is Heather Brandon. Production help this week from Dan Bennett and Alex Bronstein. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR.